and welcome to episode 15 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And today we'll be discussing Jocelyn Morehouse's 1990 film Proof, our picks from movie Australia's current offering, and we'll be looking at our top three favourite precocious children from cinema as a tie-in to our first review, Mira Nia's Disney film Queen of Cutway. Hey Fiona, how is your life? It is fine. Girl, come inside. What is your name? Fiona. Could you please show Fiona how to move the pieces? In chess, the small one can become the big one. In 2012, journalist Tim Provers wrote an article for ESPN about Fiona Mutesi, a girl born in the Ugandan slum of Cartway, who one day discovers chess and goes on to become a master of the game. In some nice corporate synergy, ESPN parent company Disney has produced a film version of the story. Starring Lupita Nyong'o, David Oyelowo and newcomer Medina Nalwanga, screenwriter William Wheeler has said that Queen of Cartway is an attempt to, quote, try to gently expand the idea of what a Disney film can be, end quote. Eloise, do you think Queen of Cartway is successful in realising this ambition? Yeah, I really do. It's interesting that you frame the film in that way. I, you know, was having kind of ums and ahs about whether having, you know, you know, this whole diversification push is is a good thing or not. I mean, obviously, it's a good thing in, in theory, and whether in practice it is or not is is up for debate. But David Oyelowo is really really excited about this film and has said a lot publicly about how he's was on board immediately and very excited that this is a film that is basically set and filmed in Uganda by a director who's very familiar with the space and with the environment and I really enjoyed the film a lot you know it does have that those elements of like a Disney kind of sort of seems a little bit sanitary in a Disney kind of way but but overall I think that the story itself is just a really uplifting one and that the, the filmmaking you know pays it that way so. Yeah, cool. Would you agree with that, Andy? Yeah, I was really um, moved by this film. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I've seen a couple of uh, Mira Nye's films before, and I found them a little over long. I, th- I thought this could have probably lost about 20 minutes to half an hour without losing too much of the story, because it does tend to um, meander a little, I think. Uh, they tries to pull in a lot of the community, like of Cutway itself. So there's a lot of fantastic scenes of chaos and noise and huge, like, colour. The palette alone, I think, is fantastic. Sean Bobbitt's cinematography really, really captures the crazy hustle and bustle of, of the community there. There seems to be, like, a cast of thousands, from what I can gather, because there's so many crowded scenes and so many shots of the, all the main characters just, you know, make, making their way through um, the busy streets or through traffic jams and that sort of stuff, and that gives it a really strong background, I think. Yeah, the visual palette is is excellent, you're right. And I think it's really important to see this in a cinema because it's just so stunning. Um, or the costume design, like the set design, everything is really great. And I do agree with you as well that I think it was a bit over long, but I don't think for those reasons that, you know, setting, I feel like setting up the, the idea of the neighborhood of Cutway and this kind of the area of Kampala within Uganda was really important and key, especially given that this is a film that's trying to open up new directions that Disney can go. Mm. What I think was maybe a bit long, some of the chess scenes are actually a bit too long. You know, this is about a, a girl who learns to play chess and becomes a chess champion. And it's almost as though so there's moments of dramatic tension that that Miranea tries to accentuate by focusing on individual chess moves back and forth. And I feel like if you didn't play chess or if you'd never learnt the rules of chess, 
that would just be totally lost on you and you would be bored. I actually felt myself getting kind of kind of excited and I really wanted to play chess again. But I, I don't know, do you agree with me that they just, there was a little bit too much emphasis on those chess scenes as, you know, like kind of a sport, sporting match, mm. which they are officially classified yeah. as a sport. Yeah, that, they, didn't, they, that didn't bother me yeah. so much. I was really excited to watch the, the games, although playing chess a bit myself, I was a bit suspicious over some of the moves. I thought there was a few things that were a bit obvious <laughs> and they're obviously wanting to pull back again to that symbolism of a pawn becoming a queen when it hits the last square. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I, so I didn't mind that so much, but it was much more interested in the domestic result of being a success in a place like that. So there's a lot of time given over to the, um, the, the relationships with the, within the family and the effect that um, Fiona's success was having. So, the, yeah, there was a bit of that stuff, but it was also some of the fastest edited chess I've ever seen because yeah, right. <laughs> usually those, to- those moves take like 15 minutes you know, between, but that was just like... And actually that's one of the things I really liked. The clicking sound. Yes. Because everyone's doing this all the time. The, all the way through the I love the sound effects of putting a, a um, chess piece on the board. Oh, yeah. It was just the sound effects for that were just kind of astounding. I love them. They really got me going, mm. really got me into it. Yeah, but, yeah, probably. the editing, not even in the chess games, but just all the time, you know, the fast movement yeah, through, yeah. through the streets was really excellent. I yeah, which was strange because that does kind of play to a younger, a younger audience. But I was also wondering whether, like if you're younger than 12 whether you you have the patience to sit through the whole thing because there's a lot of beautiful two hours shots. and five minutes yeah, or something yeah, yeah, it, seems, yeah, yeah. it seems like a big ass but I could be I'd be really happy to be wrong <laughs> yeah I, I also loved the um, relationship between Robert Katende who's David Ayoole's character and um, Fiona Matusi it was really wonderful to see a film in Uganda where you get to see the country without warfare without mm, you know mm. genocide without all these horrible things that usually put it in the headlines and just see this really beautiful human story play out because it seemed like even though it was in a really really impoverished part of the country that there was that much violence there was a bit of prostitution going on in the background which is yeah. possibly a first for Disney I'm not sure yeah that was really interesting and I kind of thought maybe it was a bit cheesy the way that they because they kind of suggested maybe her mother because her mother was widowed would have to resort to prostitution to look after the kids and yeah, that was really tricky, you know, maybe they, because they did actually put that situation forward and was it cheesy the way they dealt with it or was it kind of realistic? Yeah, I think maybe it was more cheesy. But, yeah, well, but, the character's you know, name is Knight. I'm not sure whether that's real, but what I really loved, and I wasn't aware of this at all, Miranair's earlier film, Mississippi Masala, was filmed in Uganda as well, uh, in Kampala, the same, the same kind of area of, U- of Uganda, the same city. But she actually, she's an, you know, an Indian American filmmaker who I thought lived in New York, and I think she probably does, but she actually has a film school in Uganda. Right. Um, where, I don't know exactly the type of film school, but um, Lupita Nyong'o is actually an, a graduate of that film school. So they must have met each other then, or at least known each other from that period of time, which Lupita mm. Nyong'o was there. But it's really great, and I think that Mirene also partly lives in Kampala, and so the fact that she's been given this story and been given this freedom to present the city and the area and the country as, as it is, and she actually lives there and understands the kind of way that people that people live and operate and kind of need to go towards their goals um, in perhaps a way that's reaching beyond their, you know, their immediate surrounds. Um, mm. The fact that she's doing that is, is really great, um, you know, on top of the fact that this movie is kind of doing the same thing. What did you think of uh, Medina Nalwanga's rock performance? Because she's surrounded by, you know, David Oyewolo and Lupita yeah. Nyong'o, amazing actors. Great. I never doubted her for a second. Yeah, because it was a big role to carry. Like, she was in pretty much every scene. Yeah, and she was only 14 
Oh, she's only 14 now or something. Right. So, you okay. know, very yeah. young. Yeah. Mm. Um, what I, I really loved as well, that after the film kind of ends in the beginning of the closing credits, they have this sequence of maybe, you know, the top six or eight lead characters appear on screen with their real life counterparts mm. in yeah. this like really nice, warm, loving embrace. And I just loved that that gave this film an extra layer of just being a really beautiful project that was endorsed by the people who actually lived Mm, it Um, and that it is something that in fact we should appreciate and that we are lucky to have been given as an audience and i felt like that that final those final moments really yeah they really sealed it (laughs) yeah for sure. Yeah, I really loved, I really liked her performance. I felt like sometimes she was speaking as almost as though English was a second language mm. with some of the dialogue. But then the way that the camera would kind of rest on her face, it reminded me actually quite a lot of um, Carl Dreyer's Joan of Arc. The way yeah. that her chin was slightly tilted up and there was this defiance and this kind of passive, like not passive, latent strength, I suppose, mm-hmm. that you just kind of really, really helped the later scenes where, you know, you, she needed to be stubborn and she needed to be really sure of herself to be able to... Send, you know, put, take this to the fairy tale ending that it had. Yeah, interesting. Um, I was a bit disappointed, I suppose, in her, her character, and also in the fact that every every time, and part of it was a gender thing. Like every time Fiona beat a, a boy, the boy got angry that they were being beaten by a girl, basically. Mm. But every time any character, um, male or female, lost a game of chess, including Fiona was a really sore loser and that really pissed me off. I was yeah. like, can we not have some more, I don't know, respect for the game and respect for people? I mean, maybe that was the way it is. I don't know. Mm. But that just fat came across as really fake to me. Yeah. Right, okay. And and she was included in that. But, you know, yeah. when she won, it was just so nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really was. Cool. So uh, you would agree that this does expand the boundaries of what a Disney film should be and people should see it? Yeah, I suppose so. I think it does feel like it's a very new area for them to take and this mm. whole new, um, new sort of story for them to tell. Yeah, you know, it's like an underdog kind of, you know, uplifting journey yeah. type of mm. story. So in that way, it's a very similar template of what you would expect Disney movies to be. But I think it just does it in really interesting ways. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's about chess for one thing. That's not immediately like a go out and see it kind of, no, yeah, kind yeah. of topic. And it's set in Uganda and kind of tries to capture the, the state of, of Africa um, in the world. And so there are a number of interesting things that it's doing that mm. might not immediately sell. And it does have a relatively small release, I think. Like, it is showing at some points, but not in, in the city, just in some of the major suburban areas and at Nova. Um, mm. So it's, yeah, interesting to know who is going to go and see this movie. But I think I think you should. Mm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, um, well, ever since Disney did a straight story with David Lynch, I've been kind of like, well, <laughs> all bets are off as to what I'm going to do next. But yeah, this did really feel like a film aimed at a younger audience. Yeah, it almost pushes back the Jungle Book or something like that when they were telling stories from different cultures for a Western audience. Interesting. Double thumbs up, I think. Cool. So Queen of Catway is showing in limited release at the moment, um, and we recommend you see it. What do you see? Nothing. Are you sure? Before love comes trust. No more game playing. Games are over. Time for truth. Before trust comes proof. Who else is here? Who do you think is here? Hugo Weaving, Genevieve Picot, and Russell Crowe in Proof. Sometimes it takes the darkness to see the light.
Next up is Jocelyn Morehouse's 1990 film Proof, which is about Hugo Weaving's Martin, who's a blind from birth and he trusts nobody except the camera that he uses to replace his eyes. He doesn't find anyone he trusts enough to describe the photos to him until he meets Russell Crowe's Andy, who works as a kitchen hand in an Italian restaurant. Uh, Martin lives with Celia, his housekeeper, who's played by Genevieve Picot, and they have a very strained relationship that becomes even more complex when Andy enters into the picture. Um, what did you make of this film? Look, it was really strange, but I loved it overall. I think the characters were great. And it was just, I mean, I guess I say strange, but, you know, in that way that we expect those 90s kind of quirky, com- Australian quirky comedies to be. Overall, it's this beautiful story of a friendship, right? Between Russell Crowe and the blind character uh, played by Hugo Weaving. And so it was it was really nice and kind of you did trace their friendship you know in terms of just being a believable narrative along and I felt you know very engaged the the one reservation I sort of have and I just want to bring it up now so that we can be aware of it the whole time and I don't know whether you guys thought the same thing but that the female character you know the antagonist didn't feel real to me and I was like why does she have to be why does the the one person who's possibly destroying Martin's life and and performing in this really antagonistic way why does she have to be a woman (laughs) and why does she have to have like no backstory no explanation to her erratic behavior you know clearly she's quite fucked up because of the things that she's doing and the way that she's responding to both of the men but we got nothing of that and so that really dug at me in in the wrong way sadly but but overall I think I I liked the relationship between the two guys and so yeah her character was very sort of oddly drawn wasn't it because like on the one hand she's obsessed with this guy Martin she has Hugo weaving uh, his character's portraits all over his mm-hmm. wall mm-hmm. but on the other hand she like seduces the like very hunky Russell Crowe character as yeah, well yeah and so you're like is she just basically a, a sex hungry woman who would bone anyone yeah that's kind of what it's <laughs> what it's suggested yeah. it is but mm. clearly there's more going on that we don't get yeah, that was the only problem I really had with it. Was it was this kind of implausibly hermetic world in which it lived, where nobody else had any relevance to the story unless it was via Martin's blindness. So the only two characters we really get to know are Russell Crowe and Genevieve Picot's characters, and both of them are related, and their motivations seem to be all around his his lack of vision. And so, yeah, I do totally agree. The Genevieve Picot character rang was really false, and I kept waiting for there to be a deeper explanation as to why she was being so unusual and so obsessive. Um, of course there wasn't, though, because ultimately it was a story about, you know, a friendship between two men, so she just gets sidelined. Well, it's not surprising, you know, really, which is sad. Yeah, I mean, even Andy didn't have any other relationships, really. I mean, we never got to know anything mm. about him. Um, he seemed to have a lot of spare time. Yeah. <laughs> Martin seemed to have a lot of money. I'm not sure where that came from. Maybe there was some leftover from his, his uh, parents or something, but... It seemed like it had theatrical roots, and it only really seemed to play out in a few locations. Was it adapted from a play? Um, not that I can tell. I think it was written. It was only written by Jocelyn Morehouse as well. Mm. It was directed, mm. but um, yeah, I thought that was that was what made it quite interesting. Was it was quite a sort of claustrophobic yeah. film because a lot of it's set in his house. Um, his sort of classic middle-class Melbourne house with, like, the stained glass window door and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and the dinky kitchen. And the and, dinky yeah, kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of it's filmed in this, like, quite tight environment. And then you see the outside world really through the the photos that he takes. And he always takes... He sort of fixates on, like, single elements of things. Like, he's not into taking photos of panoramas or anything. He's into, like, taking photos of leaves or, like 
Russell Crowe's eye or like random little things. So mm. this is really <clears throat> like um, she does in the movie how she like creates the portrait of uh, Russell Crowe's character by all these different pictures of his body. I felt like it was showing us Melbourne in this similar kind of like little bit of this, little bit of that, the park. Uh, we saw Hamer Hall for a mm, bit. So, yes. like, all these little little side excursions, but most most of it seemed to be set in this, like, claustrophobic house. It did mm. feel very theatrical to me, too. Yeah. It would actually mm. make an amazing play. Yeah. I thought, yeah. actually. Yeah. Just on that, Anders, I really love that there's this moment where uh, Celia finds Martin's photos of Andy and she, like, assembles them and they're just little bits like his eye, you know, and his arm and you know his feet or, or whatever and she assembles this large collage kind of collage thing. of him so that she finally knows what this man Andy looks like and I love that just in itself but also in, in the way that it related to the way that Martin saw the world in a way that he had it described to him in just in a piecemeal manner kind of thing I really love that kind of symmetry there Mm. Yeah, for sure. I also thought the sound design was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. And a, a bit self-consciously, I think, but in a in a really interesting way. So, like, I loved how our introduction to the uh, housekeeper character was she was, like, smoking in uh, in his house and Martin comes back to the house and, like, he can't tell if there's anyone in, his, in the room and then you just hear her, like, really audibly tap her cigarette and then he's like, oh, you're, you're here, you're home. So, mm. I thought that was, like, a really neat kind yeah. of example and there were lots of other little versions of that yeah well. like when when he's pouring the port and Andy says how do you know when when to stop and he says because of the sound and then you get this cut to him pouring a glass of port and you can hear the way that it sounds different from when the glass is empty to when it's mm. full yeah. Yeah. I really love that you know trying to get us kind of into the mind of, of Martin and what he was experiencing and how he understood you know because there's obviously all, all these thoughts of pieces of knowledge that that Martin has that is obviously not through his sight so how does he know what they are and, and I felt like it kind of did a really nice job of creating that sensory environment mm, yeah, definitely so. yeah I thought that was one of its real strengths I mean for a debut film it's it's a pretty remarkable achievement I feel mm. like it's it was really well controlled I felt like she really kind of achieved what she set out to um, because it is a, a, quite a small story and it's a perfect thing to be able to tell when you've got a limited budget a few you know you just want to focus on a few characters and then pulling like the alleyways and the streets and parks and cemetery of Melbourne to to flesh it out. So I thought for its time, for 1990, I thought it was really, really, really strong. But yeah, I do agree. I feel, I feel like the Genevieve Picot character, it, maybe it, it, was a, it was an acting thing. Maybe she just didn't quite sell it. But at the same time, yeah, it been. Nobody's, back, nobody's allowed to have any of their backstory seen. It all has to be told in a kind of a fairly succinct way. So there's a couple of moments. Just that, just that Martin maybe didn't care what her yeah, backstory was yeah. because he just wanted her to be a housekeeper and nothing else because he wanted to keep his life very closed off. Um, yeah, it reminded me a little bit of Malcolm in that way, in mm, that he's living yeah, in, in urban Melbourne. There's a, there is a very, very fixed way of dealing with the world and other people kind of have to come around to the way you're dealing with it. You're not going to start taking on new information unless it comes to you in a certain way. So, yeah, I think both both the characters, both Malcolm and, and uh, Martin, are, uh, they're kind of defined by their peculiarities, but at the same time it really, really shifts the way that you can relate to them as a viewer as well as the way that they relate to other people in the story. And that can be like, you know, a, a quirky thing that is interesting, but also I felt like it, it does draw, it does become a barrier at points mm. because he was a very closed-off character, Martin. Like, he really didn't have, really didn't seem to have anybody else in his life, you know, before the film began. Yeah, overall, in terms of what the, this movie was trying to do thematically and what its message was, I really liked 
you know, we've kind of touched on this, but I really like that idea of the, the visual proof is the truth. And, and is that real? Is mm. that always... I really like that. And I was thinking, I don't know, maybe this is stretching too far, but I was thinking about Susan Sontag's on photography. And, you know, she says, we don't really see the world anymore. We just try and create it through what we want our images to be. And by taking too many photographs, we're not really experiencing the world. We're just curating it. I think it's particularly um, interesting from the scene in which Jennifer Picot's character, uh, Celia, takes a photo of Martin while he's on the bar- on the toilet, and she uses that as leverage to try and go out with him for a night, so that they can she can try and have a chance at seducing him. Yeah, I didn't like that bit. And that felt really really hollow. No. I mean, especially in this day and age, where if someone took a photo of you on the bathroom, be like, who cares? And even in 1990, I imagine who yeah, would care. Yeah, it was kind of like, who cares? He's just sitting on the loo. It's not like it's. You know, yeah, anything particularly. <laughs> yeah, and he he would have known what she could have seen as well because he had a, he had a book open on his lap. So that was another point where I was just like, okay, so I guess that is an interesting way of using his you know this photo as a form of currency, I suppose. It did make me think a few times of um, Antonioni's blowout, blowout, blow up, blow up. The idea of voyeurism, but it's like a two-man voyeurism here because he can't see, so he has to rely on Russell Crowe's character. You know, they're sort of both collaborating in that role and also the noises of like trees rustling in the park the emphasis on this park stuff because that's all through that movie as well the sound stuff i found really interesting i thought yes it was a neat sort of high concept film Mm. i guess i yeah i I don't know I, i quite liked it so this has just been digitally restored by the nfsa so it's obviously this really important film that australia needs to cherish as part of its history and it's going to be really important, you know, for everyone to see it. So I'm glad that we're finally watching it now. Mm, definitely. Um, yeah. And I think I'll definitely return to it. You know, it's a good one. Yeah, I agree. If you're wanting to escape the summer heat throughout the next couple few weeks in Melbourne, these are some options that are on uh, that are on offer around the city. Uh, the Made in Melbourne Festival runs until December 11th um, with a number of local productions, and you can find out which ones and when at mim.org.au. Acme are running an Essential Anime Heroines Festival from December 14 to 23, which includes some much-loved classics like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and My Neighbor Totoro. But I personally would like to single out the very underrated Summer Wars, which was a huge hit in Japan but only played for a couple of weeks in Nova about six or seven years ago. You can find out more details at acme.net.au. And finally, the Astor are showing, uh, showcasing a short series of noirs, including Chinatown, The Third Man, and The Petrified Forest. Good one. <laughs> and then there's films of Sanjit Ray from December 21st to 23rd. Oh, cool. Nice. Always a good look. And um, I would like to single out uh, Andy's performance in a film <laughs> screening this Friday at the Lido. What's it called? It's called Innuendo. That's, Innuendo. Part, that's part of the Made in Melbourne Festival. Ah, uh, cool. Yeah, and it is filmed in Melbourne. Yes, it? it is. A lot, yeah, entirely. Yeah. Some of it in my house. Cool. Um, also, It's a Wonderful Life is showing on Christmas Eve. Which is a brilliant at guarantee. the Astor. At the Astor, it's a nice tradition. Perfect, yeah, just brilliant. Um, we can it. all go sure. and cry. Oh, Let's go and have a big cry. Uh, if you're listening and you want to see us cry, that's where we'll be. <laughs> yeah, I think I will be there. <laughs> I totally recommend it. I, I watch it every year, and it never gets dull. Mm. 
Um, and then after Christmas, they're showcasing a, they're showing a Monty Python double bill on Boxing Day, and you can find more details about all of those films at astortheatre.net.au. So now we're going to take a look at what's showing on movie at the moment, give you guys our recommendations of, of what's showing and what you can maybe check out. So I'm pretty excited about the film that got announced today called uh, Salut Les Cubains, a short film made by Agnes Varda. You know, it's kind of very timely in the light of Fidel Castro's death. So this is a an, an short film, kind of a compilation of a lot of photos that Agnes Varda took when she was in Cuba um, of 1800 photos. So says the, the movie website. Um, and she uses them to kind of make this little educational documentary about what Cuba's like and maybe about what Fidel Castro kind of is doing with his regime. Um, and basically everything that, that Agnes Varda made, I'm interested in. And so yeah, cool. um, they have not uploaded an Agnes Varda film in quite a while. I think the latest mm, one, it maybe was about season, five yeah. weeks ago, yeah. was uh, Cleo from five to seven. Yep. But I remember in the past, they, they would have like a lot of her short films showing. So I'm really excited about this. And hopefully it'll be some sort of indication that we're going to get a few more on their slate. But yeah, I'm pretty excited about that one. And some more Cuban films would be cool too. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, what did you want to single out, Dan? So, I haven't seen it, but I'm dying to watch A Master Builder from 2013. Uh, so, this film is essentially smashes together two of my favourite creatives in Jonathan Demme, the filmmaker, and Henrik Ibsen, the uh, playwright. So, he's directed an adaptation of his play, The Master Builder, which is about an architect, I think, mm-hmm. who designs a house. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's literally all I know. But it's got two of my, yeah, two of my favourite. And I think Jonathan Demme is a criminally underrated filmmaker, and he's very good at realist drama, which is, well, Ibsen invented that. So, I think this would be, this is like his kind of material. So, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm very keen to check it out. Yes. Yeah, I also like the sound of that one too. Uh, if you're listening to this um, on the 5th of December, if you've got another 15 days to watch The Long Good Friday, which is the 1980 movie by John McKenzie, which I highly recommend. Um, it stars Bob Hoskins and Helen Mirren, and Hoskins plays Harold, who's this uh, English gangster who things are going very, very well for. Um, and he's trying to uh, close a lucrative new deal, property deal, with, with with a view to hosting a future Olympic Games. But then, while he's trying to um, close his deal with some American investors, these bombs start going off at these um, very inconvenient locations and places. And so he's trying. Then he starts discovering that a syndicate is trying to muscle in on his action, and uh, the, lots of gangsterism ensues. Um, this is really, really interesting for being a British gangster film, and and it's and Hoskins is just perfect. There's actually the closing scene of this is one of the great, great moments. I don't think. Yeah, this is a very famous film. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah, it's I think good. it's really, it's really a good one to check out. Definitely recommended. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to sign up to Movie, if you haven't signed up yet, then we recommend that you do. They put a, a upload a new film each day that's available on their streaming service for thirty days, uh, where you can watch them for nine ninety nine per month. But thanks to a special promo with Movie, our listeners can try it for a month free by heading to movie.com slash cultural capital. Um, so if you're interested in checking out what they've got to offer and we recommend it, um, then head to movie.com slash cultural capital and give it a go. Nice one. Alrighty. And so now for our final segment, we're returning to a uh, top three um, in light of Queen of Cutway. We're looking at our top three precocious children films. Now, this is a kind of the debated by us of what its meaning is. You yes. know, does mm. precocious yeah. mean high achieving and intelligent, or does precocious mean like a little bit brattish and annoying? <laughs> yep. 
both I think are accurate now the the definition has kind of shifted towards the latter but I do think that you know there is some some merit in remembering what what the definition used to be mm-hmm. a little bit more so yeah. you know it's it's up to us but maybe you know give us a little like hint of what you're leaning towards with your movie pick when, when we get going reclaim precocious <laughs> Ooh, yeah yeah so Anders yes Okay. Uh, well, I think I've chosen three different ones that sort of maybe come at it from three different angles. So my third one I've chosen is Alexander, the protagonist of Partisan, Ariel Climbers. Oh, nice yeah. one. Yeah. So I've recently been writing on this, which is why I was thinking about it. And at the centre of this film is a quite a precautious child who doesn't act in the way we expect a precautious child to, I guess. So Alexander is a child soldier and his father's taught him how to kill people. He's 11 years old at the outset of the film and we watch him murder a mechanic and an everyday guy in an apartment block. Um, So he's a kid who's learned how to murder at a very early age and one definition of precautious is develop to develop a skill much earlier than expected. So I guess this fits that definition. I just want to single out the emotional set piece of the film, which is like this karaoke scene uh, (laughs) where Alexander sings quite a downbeat duet with his sister. And he sort of desperately keeps his eyes on the TV screen for the entire song. Even when she's singing, he sort of can't bear to look away and look at his father who's watching. He's really like trying not to let the horrors, I guess, of what he's been forced to do overcome him. So I think it's quite a little unsettling look at the influence of the ideology, uh, ideology ide- the ideological influence of adults on their children. Sometimes precautiousness is thrust upon kids through no fault of their own. Mm, very good. What do you think, good suggestion. I think third? Oh, for my third, um, I'm choosing Hayley Steinfeld in the Coen Brothers movie True Grit. Oh, cool. For pretty much there's two... I love that film. Yeah, it's great. And her character is fantastic. I think there's two key scenes where she manages to like define precociousness I think where she's kind of forced by the circumstances to take on this extra responsibility and she's got this way with dialogue and language and just this complete confidence it doesn't take very long for um, adults and people that she's negotiating with to start getting afraid of her and her abilities so there's the wonderful scene where she's training for horses, um, mm. and <laughs> that was re- that was really great. And then any any of the scenes that she has with Jeff Bridges, I find mm. are also really entertaining. And I thought she was okay. So my number three is uh, drum roll. Home Alone. I just couldn't Whoa, help it. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't not include this film because basically I have seen it so many times and it's so much fun. And I am singling out Home Alone, the first film, rather than the second. Mm-hmm. The second is good, but I think that it's a much more unlikely premise than the first. You know, mm. um, take that comment um, <laughs> with a grain of salt, maybe. But I'm, yeah, much more on board with the first one. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, anyway. I mean, how could you not love um, Kevin McAllister, basically? He <laughs> likes plain cheese pizza. He, like, eats all the ice cream he wants. Um, the That, you know, this is kind of, you know, he outsmarts all of these adults, um, including, you know, the wet bandits, the mm, criminals. Yes. The battle plan, what kid didn't want to have that, <laughs> like, great battle plan and, like, actually being able to enact... Um, the battle plan um, it's just it's so much fun I feel like no one even needs to really talk about this film because we all just are so on board with it well not everyone you know I mean I don't want to kind of go on <laughs> board but everyone that I know um, you know is very on board with this film I just want to mention something that I was reading some reviews about it because um, you know kind of cinematically maybe it's not an excellent film it did win I believe or at least was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Score 
Oh yeah. Um, mm. Because the score is excellent, um, but not everyone really loves it. It is a bit of a ridiculous film, but great fun. But mm. Dave Kerr in his uh, review said um, that the two burglars must be fought off with a violence and sadistically far beyond the requirements of the plot. Which I just thought was kind of a, like a great. Uh, Dave Kerr didn't really love the film, but he did have you know a few kind things to say about it. And mm. so I feel like that's really great. If we're talking about precocious children, you know yeah. that is yeah. like you know above and beyond what they you know how we should kind of describe them. <laughs> There's so. a good synergy there with my number one, which Ooh. I'll come back to, um, which sort of is a darker, I think, take on that exact same. That right. quote could apply to that. Yeah, well. yeah. Mm. Um, but my number two pick is. Veda Pierce in Mildred Pierce and I'm talking here oh, about yeah. the Todd Haynes version because I haven't seen the original Michael Curtis film, uh, forgive me uh, so Veda <laughs> is sort of like the completely unfiltered personification of Mildred Pierce's desires so she's like this, Mildred is this middle class housewife with sort of big dreams for herself that she never quite manages to carry off even when things are going well for her, she never once seems to allow herself the ability to enjoy her success uh, her like very young daughter, on the other hand, carries herself with extreme social graces. She sees herself as a sophisticated young lady and she has expensive, classy tastes. She takes piano lessons. She sulks around a house that she hates for being too claustrophobic, too sort of middle class. And she lionizes this uh, ostensibly rich playboy um, who's played by Guy Pearce in the film. So um, yeah, unsurprisingly, her precautious nature annoys many of the adults around her. Um, but what's interesting to me, I think, is that she is, like, essentially the way Mildred wishes that she could act. If she didn't have her own class and gender positions, her relationships, the messiness of her adult life standing in the way. So maybe this is a definition of what precautiousness is, the freedom to act the way that adults wish they could. Hmm, nice one. What did you think, Andy, for your second? Of my second one, I chose Ophelia from Pan's Labyrinth as played by Ivana Bancaro. Oh, yeah. Because I thought that she embodied this, oh, yeah. this really great spiritual precociousness. So she has, seems to have, have this ability to straddle this fantasy world and the real world. And in the real world, her mother has remarried um, this Francoist captain, Vidal, and she's fallen pregnant with his child and moved her and Ophelia into his um, farmhouse, which also doubles as a garrison. Um, and so she's got like a really, really active imagination um, and she often escapes into fantasy and it becomes this whole allegorical situation of not being able to handle all the changes that are taking place in the real world. But then there is a, high, a good chance that Ophelia is the reincarnation of Princess Moana, who's the daughter of the king and queen of the underworld. This fawn gives her these uh, quests that she has to do to be able to um, transcend into the underworld. Um, and so these three tasks are set for her and she and the film kind of partly embodies what's going on in, the, in real life in Spain as well as this development that she's going through. So I thought that she was not only is it a fantastic character and really, really beautifully played, but um, as far as precociousness goes, I really could hardly think of anybody who kind of overcame greater challenges. And what was your number two, Eloise? Okay, so my number two and my number one are kind of, I'm shifting towards the more wicked definition of, of precocious now. And I just want to give a shout out to um, this book called Children in the Films of Alfred Hitchcock, published by Palgrave. Um, and specifically to the work, or there's an essay in this book, and also just to the work of, of a friend of mine, um, Craig Martin, who writes on evil children in films. And so that's kind of what I'm shifting towards, towards now. You know, it's a great topic. It's so much fun. And, and talking um, about this has, you know, given me a, a different perspective on a lot of movies. And, and it is, you know, it's 
a lot of if you maybe think about these children in a really serious manner it's actually like really quite devastating but there is a, some sort of glee and pleasure that we can take from from looking at, at kids in this way I think in in some films and so yeah. I, my um number two uh is these three, a 1936 film by William Wyler. It's based on the play The Children's Hour, written by Lillian Hellman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a, about a, a child um, who ruins the lives of two of her school teachers, played by Merle Oberon and Miriam Hopkins, by insinuating adultery or something else sinister with uh, their friend and the character Merle Oberon's fiance, Joel McRae. Um, now, Benita Granville, who played this child, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress and she was like 12 or 14 or something. So, you know, an astounding achievement cool. in 1936. A precocious in itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, her performance was so bitter and so sinister. And I think that although, I mean, uh, William Wyler remade this film in 1961 as The Children's Hour with Shirley MacLaine playing Martha Doby and the, they kind of shifted the focus away from well, back to what Lillian Hellman had, had insinuated in her play or, or said explicitly, which is that the two teachers were accused of being lesbians and that one of them actually admitted to having lesbian desires for the other. So the, the stakes were much higher in this mm. remake in 1961. Mm. But I just wanted to talk about the film from 1936 because Benita Granville is so excellent at being this child who is absolutely terrifying. You can see in her eyes and the way that she knows what's going on around her. She's got power over her peers, over her grandmother. And as she knows by her grandmother, who's, you know, this kind of high society woman over all of society. And she knows by fabricating this lie, basically, um, that she's feeding on society's inclination for prejudice. And it's horrific. She just basically thinks that she can have everyone um, eating out of the palm of her hand. And it's so horrific that this child is able to do this and control everyone around her as pawns. And so she's like, you know, the supreme evil child um, (laughs) in, you know, in kind of a melodramatic context in that way, I suppose. (laughs) And so anyway, these three, it's a great movie. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Uh, So my number one pick was Elias and Lucas in the film Goodnight Mummy. Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala's horror thriller thriller film from 2014. And a spoiler alert that I am going to discuss the ending of Goodnight Mummy. Mm. Can I discuss that with you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So Goodnight Mummy is a slow burn horror film whose final reveal pushes it into sort of much more deeply unsettling psychological territory, I think. So basically a woman whose face is wrapped in bandages shows up at this beautiful lakeside mansion and is immediately greeted with suspicion by these twin brothers, Elias and Lucas. She says she's their mother, but she's acting quite strangely. They begin to question whether she is. Uh, This central question of is she or isn't she propels attention of the first two thirds of the film before we eventually learn that yes, she is their mother. But unfortunately for this woman, Elias and Lucas, who it turns out are just one boy whose twin brother died before the events of the film, don't believe this. So they, or should I say Elias, ends up torturing his real mother in increasingly gruesome ways in the mistaken belief that she's an imposter. Mm. 
So there are two major ways that I think this kid is incredibly precocious. Um, on the simplest, most graspable level, there are like these kind of grimly ingenious ways in which he tortures her. He uses simple children's objects, most memorably like super glue, to inflict pain on this poor woman um, who he mistakenly believes has been psychologically torturing him. So he's sort of ingenious uh, way to use his sort of kids tools and kids stuff for quite horrific effect I think is, is quite precautious um, but the second aspect of his precautious nature and the more resident one I found is for in his delusion that his mother is not actually his mum uh, you could argue that an unwavering and inevitably self-destructive belief in the illusion of certainty is the definition of adulthood so goodnight mum is a lies has grown up very early indeed Wow. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty. It's uh, a pretty intense, harrowing film. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, for Not my, for everyone, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine, but yeah, I did. Um, the trailer for that alone was pretty chilling. I remember. Yeah. I didn't go that much further. <laughs> um, for my number one, I chose uh, Katinka Untaru, who is the star of Tarsem Singh's 2006 film The Fall, which is one of the most underrated, underseen films of the last couple of decades. It's The story of the film is this four-year-old Romanian girl called Alexandria is um, in a hospital in Los Angeles in 1915 and um, because she fell out of a tree picking oranges and so she's got a broken arm and in the, in, she's pretty much the only other resident of the um, hospital is Lee Pace's paralysed stuntman. And so she meets him and he really, really wants her to steal some morphine from the hospital for him and in return he spins these wonderful, fantastic stories for her. And so the entire film is seen as through her... Um, imagination which is just so it's so the scale of this thing is really really hard to explain express actually um tarsam singh was a was a, an advertisement like he shot advertisements and so every time he got sent to a, on to another location for an advertisement he just got to stick around for a few more days shoot some more scenes and so he kind of built it around um this girl uh katinka utari's character who wasn't even born when he started searching for the actress who wanted he wanted to play for this play this role um, and, so, and she's, since she's Romanian and the film is in English, she's kind of using her second language the whole time. And so at the beginning of every scene, he would kind of school her in the words he wanted her to say. And he would only let her meet the characters um, on the day that she was meeting them. So it's this really, really naturalistic, honest performance. Um, and her precociousness, I suppose, comes through in the fact that she keeps questioning this, the fantasy stories that she's being told and like looking for logic in them and trying and forcing Lee Pace's character to become better and better and more and these stories to get wilder and crazier and more interesting um, as, the, as the film goes on so if it's possible to ever see this at a cinema sorry I would definitely definitely take that opportunity okay so my number one and I must actually go back and correct myself so my number one is not really about an evil child just want to say um, I was getting a bit excited there if you could tell but my number one and this is sort of just in honour um, of this man Billy Chapin's death this week at the age of 72, I want to discuss uh, his role. He was a child actor in the 50s. His role in The Night of the Hunter, the Charles oh. film. Um, so Billy Chapin played uh, a son, John Harper, who kind of takes care of his sister, Pearl. For those of you who've seen the film or even haven't, I mean, it's very iconic. The targeted by this, this evil, well, this like fake preacher, Harry Powell, played by Robert Mitchum, who wants to basically um, eke out of them where their dead father has hidden $10,000 that he stole. Um, and so he kind of, he manages to fool everyone around, everyone around him, including, you know, the shop owners, including their mother, a widow whom he seduces and marries and then murders um, in this incredible scene. Yeah. Um, the, the entire film is just visually stunning and also um, 
you know, sonically incredible. The score and the sound effects and everything is just stunning. Um, but, but the son, John Harper, basically from the get-go, he just doesn't believe the preacher and he thinks there's something off and he knows that um, he's not, you know, he's not real. He's not to be trusted. And so the reason, you know, why, why he's one of the, basically the most incredible um children who kind of leads the film in a supporting way he's definitely a precocious child because he fights and he fights for him and his sister to to escape the chase of this this evil preacher um and he you know runs into the hands of the this incredible like most badass woman in all film history <laughs> Lillian Gish, Lillian Gish. Oh, um, love <laughs> and she also recognizes uh, the preacher's reprehensible ways all along um, mm. and and doesn't let him kind of get to them. But the, there's a, some other things that I just wanted to bring up really briefly about this film because there's a lot about, um, you know, the role of children and that the children are meant to be subservient and children are meant to always believe their elders. Mm. Um, and, of course, that is that is spouted in order to be twisted by the the evil preacher um but it's also kind of used and spoken by by the Lilingish yeah, character is, but mm. early on in the film the preacher says um an ungrateful child is an abomination before the eyes of god <laughs> um and that's interesting given what we're talking about and then the the final uh oh he also says the devil wins sometimes anyway um <laughs> i was just taking notes but the final line of the film is Lilingish, and she's um, you know, kind of appreciating all of her, her adopted children. And she says, she's recalling a, a biblical verse that she um, spoke earlier. And she says, they abide and they endure. And it's just a really nice thing. You know, you think about children and their, um, how much fight they've got in them. Mm. Um, and this film is, you know, about that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I also really like the way that he's, well, I don't like it, but he's kind of abandoned by all adults towards the beginning of that. So he's kind of forced into this role. It's not like he chooses to... Yeah, yeah, because he's the only yeah. one who so knows. Yeah, and the adults are stupid and they're fooled as yeah. well. So. so he's kind of forced to become precocious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a what a brilliant film. Yeah, it's a stunning. Films. Yeah, same. Yeah, and also it it ends on a Christmas scene. So you know, yeah. happy yeah, December everyone. Yeah, yeah, and so, watch it. same with Time Alone. Nice, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice yeah, yeah. Best, yeah, festive right. um, contribution. <laughs> there. Uh, did you have any other nearly but not quite? Oh well, my nearly but not quite, I suppose would be the Michael Curtiz version of Mildred Pierce. The same way as, you know, like the, the child in these three who, and, and Vita is very yeah, much like that, child. where she, um, you know, that scene or that moment, and it occurs in both films where Vita puts on, makes their maid wear her Mildred Pierce's wait, waitress yeah, outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... And Mildred Pierce says, why is she wearing that? And she says, well, I found it. Vita says, well, I found it in the cupboard. I can't imagine it's for anything except for her to wear. Um, and you know that she's lying and you know that she knows that her mother is a waitress. But she's yeah. using that, you know, facade of childlike innocence yeah. to to get her way. And you see them both do that. And I think that's just, mm. you know, kind of so heart-wrenching to yes. watch. But it's so powerful in movies. And, what, and yeah. what do you think? I know this is, we're getting... A little bit into yeah, real Yeah, but now. it's cool. <laughs> um, what do you, do you think? Because the way I see it is like, I don't think that's a charitable movie necessarily about Mildred Pierce herself. And I think that her daughter is in some respect, an unrestrained version of her. I think she's repressed all of this. Like mm -hmm. she is, she's, she's, cause I think that's what she wants she's for herself. She's being withheld, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so she takes it out on her own mother. So it's a weird, very, 
Oh yeah, it's it's quite grim, but it's, like it's grim, amazing. It's, a very, it's really like, cool it's great. experience. Cruel to everyone, I think, when mm, when you yeah. watch it. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, and no one's fit. What was your um? um you had an extra I one? really. Oh, I had so there were so many great performances. I thought uh-huh. I'm, I, I was really hoping to find room for Lindsay Lohan's double role in as Ali and Hanny as, oh, as Annie and yes. Hallie in the Parent Trap. I was sure you were going to use yeah. that because I know it's one of your favorite. I do. Films. I, yeah, but I just I think she they were just she was just out precocious by uh-huh. the other people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, Diane Lane is in the very, very, very underseen A Little Romance, I think it's amazing, which is a really strange film in which uh, she plays this American student who meets a French boy and then they both kind of end up listening to the stories of Laurence Olivier who plays this old man who, and he kind of fills nice. their minds with this wonderful idea that they've got the world at their feet and they run off to Italy together. Oh my God, what about everyone in Bugsy Malone? Oh, right? good, yeah. I don't think oh, that counts yeah. though because they're kind of <laughs> playing dress-ups. That's a kind of yeah, force precocious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's um, a fun one maybe. Yeah, definitely. I would consider that. Um, and Sasha Ronan in, in Atonement and Lena Leanstrom uh, oh, in Let the Right One In. I thought mm. she was kind of incredible. But she's also not entirely a child. She's like part vampire too. So <laughs> like a bit of a cheat maybe. <laughs> But that brings us to the end of episode 15 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to um, get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod, at Cultural Capital Podcast on Facebook. And where can people get in touch with you, Anders? They can find me on Twitter at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And I'm at Andy Ricky. And we'll be back again in on December 19th with an extra special version of Cultural Capital. See you then. See you then. Mm-hmm.